I'd like to encourage you to uh, take your Bible and turn uh, to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Christians at Ephesus, to a classic passage in which Paul talks about uh, the important aspect of our salvation, that it is by grace through faith, a gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, in a moment, verses 1 through 9, we'll read it together. Philip Yancey talks about a young girl in his book, um, What's So Amazing About Grace? A young girl who grew up on a cherry orchard just outside of Traverse City, Michigan. This young girl's parents were a bit old-fashioned, I suppose. They didn't react so well to her nose ring or her tattoos, to the music that she listened to, to the length of her skirts. She was grounded a number of times for getting into trouble, and each time she seethed inside at her old-fashioned fuddy-duddy parents. In fact, one time she screamed out in anger at her father, I hate you. I wish I was never born into this family. One night she acted on a plan that she had rehearsed in her mind a hundred times over. She ran away from her parents' home, and she ran to Detroit, the closest and biggest city to her. The second day that she was in Detroit, she met a man who drove the biggest car that she had ever seen. He offered her a ride, offered to buy her lunch, arranged for a place for her to stay. He gave her some pills that made her feel better than she had ever felt before. She was right. Her parents had been keeping her from fun. The good life had been there all the time, but her parents, because of their old-fashioned nature, had kept her from it. Well, things, the good life, continued for a month or two. The man with the big car, she called him boss, taught her a few things that men like. Since she was underage, men were willing to pay a premium for her. She lived in a penthouse with room service. She could have whatever she wanted. Every once in a while, she would think about the folks back home. But their lives seemed so boring and so provincial. She could hardly believe that she grew up there. After a year, the signs of sallow illness began to appear on her face. And her boss had turned from being nice to being mean. Before you knew it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She's still able to turn a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay all that much. And all the money that she does make goes to support her habit. When the winter winds begin to blow, she finds herself sleeping on a metal grate outside a large department store. Sleeping is the wrong word because a teenage girl doesn't sleep at night in downtown Detroit because they can never relax their guards. 
Dark bands begin to circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. And she thinks to herself, Oh God, why did I ever leave my parents' home? Pain stabs her heart. She says to herself, My dog eats better than I do now. She's sobbing and she knows in a flash more than anything else in the world what she wants to do is to just be able to go back home. She makes three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. The first two times she calls, she doesn't leave a message. But the first, the third time she calls, she decides with courage to leave a message and she speaks out, Dad, Mom, I was wondering if it might be all right if I could come home. I'm catching a bus your way and I'll get in tomorrow into Traverse City about midnight. If you're not there, well, I guess, I guess I'll know you don't want me. And so I'll just stay on the bus until I hit Canada. As she gets on that bus from Detroit to Traverse City, she begins to wonder what if her parents were out of town and they missed the message altogether? Or what if they were at home, but long ago they had considered her dead and had written her off? She should have given them time to overcome the shock of her call. Her thoughts bounce back and forth as she practices and rehearses the speech that she will make to her parents. Dad, I'm sorry. I was so wrong. It's not your fault. It's mine. Can you forgive me? She says the words over and over again. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. What will they do with her apology? When the bus finally rolls into the station at Traverse City, its air brakes hiss in protest. The driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, we only have 15 minutes here and then we'll be moving on. 15 minutes. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks her compact mirror. She smooths her hair. She wipes the lipstick off of her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice. She walks into the bus terminal, not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousands of scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees next. Because there in that bus terminal in Traverse City, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs of that bus terminal, stands a group of 40 people, brothers, sisters, aunts and uncles, cousins, a grandmother and a great-grandmother. They're all wearing goofy party hats and they're making noises on noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome home, sis. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her father. She stares out through the tears that quiver in her eyes like hot mercury. And she opens her mouth to begin to speak her rehearsed speech. 
And she says, Dad, he says, hush, child. We don't have time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party because there's a banquet waiting for you at home. I was so moved when I first read Yancey's story about this young girl. I'm wondering what it does for you. What do you think when you hear that story? Maybe for some of us, it puts a lump in our throats and we think, sweet forgiveness, bring it on. Maybe for others, it puts a question in our minds and we think, but where's the justice? Bring it down. Maybe for most of us, ironically though, it brings both feelings. It puts a lump in our throats and a question in our minds. And that, I think, paradoxically, is what the grace of God does for us. It creates this enigma that God loves us with an everlasting love, and yet He is a holy and righteous God who cannot bear the sight of sin. Let me say it this way. Paradoxically, grace demands nothing of you. But grace will persuade you to give everything you have away to the service of the Lord. If you want the gift of grace, it's yours for the taking. All you need to do is receive it. It demands nothing from you. It is a free gift of God. But mysteriously, grace will lure you into giving everything you have back to God in praise. And it is this kind of grace that we find in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2. Because here Paul masterfully portrays what it means to live by grace. This offensive, radical, disturbing gift of God. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And would you read verses 8 and 9 aloud with me? Read it together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I want you to pay 
close attention to ten single-syllable words in that passage. Paul makes this important statement that our salvation is by grace through faith. It is the gift of God. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus. This is what there is. This is the good news that we have to share. The basis of it is grace. It's key to the message of Jesus. Not only because grace is is the means by which God made it possible for us to be delivered from the misery and bondage that we were in when we were following the devil, when we were in sin. It is also, grace is also that which keeps us in, in the midst of the madness of this world until Christ comes and raptures us and takes us to the place we call heaven. Our God is a God of grace. And He does not treat us as we deserve. Thanks be to God. Even though we have fallen short of God's holy and righteous standard, even though we fall short of His expectations daily, He does not give us what we deserve. But instead, out of His gracious nature, He gives us His presence, His power, His protection, His provision, and His peace. Even in prayer, it's about grace. You and I are welcome to the throne of grace. And we're able to approach God the Father. Think of it. We are able to approach God because of grace. And receive mercy and find help at the time of our need. Grace. It's truly amazing. And it seems to me that the older I get, the more I understand and appreciate this aspect of the gospel of Christ. That it's not about me, but it's all about the gracious working of God in Christ. And most of us know that in our heads. Most of us can spout off the classic definition uh, of, of grace, that it is the unmerited favor of God. We know it. We believe it. We understand that our salvation is by grace. But unfortunately, what I'm discovering is that a sound theology of grace can literally be purely propositional. That is all in the head and never move to the heart. I think it's important to have sound doctrine. I think it's important to have a right theology. But right belief isn't good enough. It's got to travel down to your heart. In Bible times, people considered the stomach, the the belly, as the source of deeply experienced beliefs and emotions. So those passages that we now translate in our more modern translations with the word heart, actually in the older version of the King James Version, are translated with the words belly or bowels. Just a couple of examples of that. In John chapter 7 and verse 38, we read, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his, the King James translates it, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. 
Or in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. Or 1 John 3.17, but whoso hath this world's goods and seeth, seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? The reason I share those three examples with you is to to help you to understand that in Bible times, the word bowels was used exactly as we use the concept today of being something that is gut level. To be gut level is much more than mere emotions. It includes attitudes and actions and deeds. It's an all-pervasive way of thinking and feeling and doing and relating. And while I find a lot of Christians today who have sound theology, who possess a sound Bible doctrine of grace, it seems to me that it has remained at the level of their intellect and their thinking. It is a truth they believe about God. But it is not their gut level basis of living with God or themselves or others. It is doctrinal, but it is not relational. It is believed, but it is not lived out. By grace, we are saved. God accepted us, forgave us, delivered us. He set us free from the bondage of sin and guilt. He made us alive with Christ. Where once, Paul says, we were dead in our sins and our transgressions, but God. Oh, I love that. At that interjection there, but God. We were dead, but God has made us alive in Christ. We were captive to the prince of the power of the air, and we were enslaved to the course of this world, but God, by His grace, raised us up with Christ and has made us sit with Him. Think of it. He has made us sit with Him in heavenly places. We were children of wrath under God's judgment and wrath. We deserved a punishment in an eternal hell. But God, in His mercy and His grace, instead of pouring out wrath, has given to us, because of His grace, the blessed hope of an eternity with Him in heaven. Brothers and sisters, this to me is good news. According to verse 1, we were dead in trespasses and sins. That is, we were spiritually impotent. The corruption of sin was so deep that we had no spiritual inclinations at all. We may have been open tombs of immorality, or we may have been whitewashed tombs of religiosity, but let's face the facts. There was no spiritual goodness, goodness in us at all. But God walked by our open graves, and instead of turning away from the stench of our open graves, He said to His Son, Jesus, I want that mess alive. Will you die for Him? He said to Jesus. And Jesus said, yes, I will. And that's how I got saved. And that's how you got saved. Or that's how you can get saved. It is by grace, through faith. It is the gift of God. Why is it that we pray with so little fervor 
and so little affection for God? Why is it that so many of us come to a worship service like this and we sing with such blank expressions on our faces? Why is it that so few of our hearts are broken over the lost people that surround us every day? Why is it, my friend, why is it that the experience of being saved by God's grace isn't more like the first morning of summer vacation when the sun rises over the lake and the air is crisp and clear and the fish are biting and the bacon is sizzling and the coffee is ready and the family is healthy and happy. Why isn't salvation, the gift of God's grace, more like that instead of the way most of us think about it as a gray, drizzly, damp day with a hole in the tent and everyone grumbling? Why is our love for Jesus so lukewarm when we should be white hot in our devotion for Christ? I believe one of the reasons is this. That our sound thinking about God's grace has not traveled the requisite 18 inches from our head to our gut. It has not become gut level for us. And you can't be white hot in your devotion to Christ if your ideas about God's grace remain a mere mental proposition. We have been saved by grace, rescued, made alive in Christ. By grace, through faith, it is a gift of God. And this, if it hit us in our gut, listen to me, if it hit us in our gut about the reality of God's grace, it ought to make you rise to your feet and shout, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Amen. But we sing on grace, grace, God's grace. Remember what we once were. Dead. That's what I love about believers' baptism. It's such a word picture of our condition. We were dead. But through the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, the, the baptismal candidate is lifted out of the waters to what? New life. The dead has become alive. The one who was under the wrath of God now enjoys the peace of God. The one who had no hope now has a blessed hope. This is what we have by God's grace in Christ Jesus. And if the idea of God's grace would just hit us in our guts this morning, if we were suddenly made more acutely aware of the gravity of our sin and the immensity of God's gift, if we could just somehow bring back to remembrance how terrible our plight was without Jesus, I believe that we would be moved not just in our heads, but in our bellies. And we would cherish we would cherish Jesus. We would love God more.
we would not sing with blank faces. I believe that strong, burly men would stand up without shame and speak endearingly of the Lord. That teenagers would boldly proclaim their love and praise for Jesus. I believe that if grace hit us down at the gut level, I believe that our prayer would become less mechanical and it would be this vibrant conversation between us and the Heavenly Father if we only could remember what Christ has saved us from. So my encouragement to each of us today is simply this. Remember what you came from and celebrate God's grace, His unmerited favor. But don't let this just be a mind game. Get kicked in the gut with this truth this morning. The biblical concept of grace is profound. It is truly amazing. And were we to devote just the next decade to studying this one biblical concept, we would not even come close to plumbing its depths. So today in this service, as we celebrate His grace, We've done so as new believers have been baptized into the Christian faith. And we will do so in a few moments as the tokens of God's grace will be placed in our hands. We remember and we celebrate the one who died and arose and lives. His name is Jesus. And his message is grace. Few have ever pictured Jesus and his message more clearly, I think, than the great English preacher of days gone by, John Bunyan. He wrote the Christian classic, Pilgrim's Progress. Despite the archaic-sounding English, I think Bunyan is spot on when it comes to grace. Listen to what he has to say. Thou Son of the Blessed, what grace was manifested in thy condescension. Grace brought thee down from heaven. Grace stripped thee of thy glory. Grace made thee poor and despised. Grace made thee bear such burdens of sin, such burdens of sorrow, such burdens of God's curse as are unspeakable. O Son of God. Grace was in all thy tears. Grace came out of thy side with thy blood. Grace came forth with every word of thy sweet mouth. Grace came out where the whip smote thee, where the thorn pricked thee, where the nails pierced thee. Here is grace indeed. Grace that will cause angels to wonder that will make sinners happy and will astonish devils. This is the grace by which we have been saved. By grace, through faith, it is the gift of God. Let us pray. Forgive us, O Christ, for our half-hearted attempts to express our praise and thanksgiving.
for the display of your grace. This wonderful, radical, mind-blowing gift. Will you, O God, cause by the mystery of your Spirit's working in our lives, will you cause this biblical truth to make that long trip from our head to our heart? And may it impact us in our bowels today, even as we take these elements of bread and wine and remember the price you paid to accomplish our salvation We pray that it will strike us afresh how much you love us and how wonderful your grace really is. Speak to our hearts even as we come to celebrate at this table today. Refresh us with a fresh visitation of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name.